Hey, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Looking hey, Rick. To thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm excited to talk. Awesome. So you have a podcast called I Want to Talk About This Poem, and you have a, a debut book called None But Witches, Poems on Shakespeare's Women. And I wanted to dive in about the book because I'm fascinated about what the impetus was for that. Uh, like, what was uh, what was the process for that, and what what kind of got you uh, on that track to write about that? Well, I in 2018, I decided I decided for my New Year's resolution that I was going to read all of Shakespeare's plays in one year. Oh my gosh! Um, which uh, I didn't do. So anybody, everybody's like, "Ooh!" when I say that, and I'm like, "Uh." Took me two years though, actually. <sighs> but I had this Oxford complete Shakespeare that my parents had given me when I was 16. And I just started at the first place. So I read them all in chronological order and I just, I would read a little bit every single day. Oh um, and then when I got to like the fourth or fifth play, I thought, oh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I've always held the position that if you want to talk about something that no one else wants to talk about, you can write a poem about it. So I started writing a poem about, it was Titus Andronicus was the play actually, which for people who have never read it is this absolutely insane early Shakespeare play. It's crazy. It's so gory. And one of the main things that happens in Titus Andronicus is that Titus, um, captures like the queen of the Amazons and then he marries her, but she's kind of a prisoner bride and she's secretly plotting against him the whole time. And then he, um, his daughter, uh, one of the ways that she takes revenge is that she has her sons rape his daughter. And after they rape her, they cut out her tongue and they cut off her hands. And then at the end of the play, Titus has everybody over for dinner and he makes he makes um, Lavinia, who is his daughter, serve everyone this stew. Again, she's holding the bowl of stew with like her stump hand arms because she doesn't have any hands anymore. And he, she serves, so she serves everybody the the stew, which turns out to be the stew made from the young from the men who raped her. And then Titus cuts her throat in front of everybody at the dinner party. So, I mean, can you imagine being like, what are you doing this afternoon? I don't yeah. know, nothing. You want to go see Titus Andronicus? That sounds fun. So I took, I started writing with that one and then I was going through and I was just writing, writing, writing. And at some point I thought, you know, I could write a poem or two about every play and that would actually make a whole, could make a book. And I'm, very pleased to say that I was submitting, which publish it when you're a creative person, it's like doing the creative thing is one part of it, but then yeah. the whole, you know, like, I don't even want to say, say like monetary part, because in poetry, there's no money, but <laughs> the whole kind of pub publication and publicity and, and self-promotion part is a completely different horrible part of it yeah and it won a prize from a small press called three mile harbor and it that's was published so cool. last year it actually just had its one year work book birthday oh that's so cool 
Well, in I mean, in terms of so, in terms of the subject matter, you're this basically you're taking on the perspective of the women in Shakespeare's plays, correct? They're not uh, all persona poems, which is what that's called in poetry when you okay. write from the voice of a character. There are some persona poems. A lot of them are kind of reflections that are inspired by the women in Shakespeare or ways that I feel like they connect to contemporary life. And although I didn't really oh. think about it at the time, when I was done with the book and I went back and looked at it, I thought, oh, you know what else was happening in 2018 was that A, Donald Trump was president and B, Me Too was happening. And <laughs> of course, when you look at the way that women in Shakespeare's plays are responding to the heavily patriarchal societies that they um, live under, you're going to see a lot of things that we were talking about in 2018 and 2019 were coming up for them as well in terms of how do I generate my own agency in a world that is really set up to deny me that. Cool. And did so did that, did those kind of thoughts seep into your into your work oh definitely but i think yeah. it was primarily subconscious and that i yeah. wasn't really thinking about it as a political book or anything at the time but now once i started looking at the whole collection of them i thought uh you know you know art is always the product of the era that creates it and we were talking a lot about misogyny and you know, and, and sexual harassment and patriarchy in 2018 and 2019 when I was writing these poems. And That's they're def cool. it's definitely explored in that book as well. That's so cool. Well, what, what is, what is your process? I mean, I know like a lot, I've got friends who are songwriters and I'm a songwriter and basically, you know, my process is no process. It's just, you know, when things come to me, I try to record them in bits and pieces and then assemble them later. Or, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a myriad ways. Sometimes lyrics will come, sometimes music will come. For a poet, or, I mean, I'm sure it's different for every poet, but what is your process? Is it, is it more methodical where you try to designate a certain time of day to write, or is it kind of just, you've got a pad by the bed and you wake up in the middle of the night with a, with inspiration? Or all of the above. <laughs> okay, this one's for the moms. My process <laughs> is mostly being really annoyed that I have to do a lot of other dumb stuff <laughs> that I don't want to be doing, and then desperately trying to cobble together enough five-minute break periods oh, man. to actually yeah. create something. That's a good I point. think I will say definitely one of the things that really transformed. My experience as a poet, because I've always written a little bit here and there, but in um, 2015, I think, I don't even remember, I, I started going to my poetry writing um, workshop group, which meets usually every other Sunday. So every two weeks we meet. And those people in that group, that kind of accountability is so important. I think that's probably true for people in any art, no matter what. Um, that once I felt like, okay, well, I don't want to show up without a poem, then I became much more regular. And the more that I wrote, the easier it became to produce something too, I think. Well, that's you know, cool. like, 
when you're in the process, when you're in the mindset of writing, you, I don't know, you just, it sort of like sets that groove. So now, whereas maybe 10 years ago, I was writing like maybe five or six poems a year. Now I can say, well, I'll probably write 20 or 30 poems a year, you know, so, and it's really because of, of having a workshop group. That's a great idea because like you said, it's, you're holding yourself accountable because you've got, you feel you've got this obligation to this group or not, maybe not obligation, but there's, there's more um, drive for you to say, well, I got to show up with something, you know, right. like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I've got a friend who was doing a song. They had a similar group for songs, right? So yeah. they, they'd come to the group with a song or they'd all work on it together or whatever. But yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. And that probably does help. Um, like you're saying too, I mean, you're a mom and you've got all these other things going on as a creative person. It's gotta be tough to, yeah, to allocate time to your art and feel like you're giving it enough time. Um, the time it deserves. Um, yeah. So that group is probably super helpful. Well, have you, so have you always been into poetry? I mean, since you were super young or like, how did this develop with you? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this last night, actually. I took my first poetry writing class when I was 15. It, it was in the summer. It was at the Nathan Mayhew seminars on Martha's Vineyard, which I looked yeah. up because I was like, does that still exist? And it doesn't anymore, which is kind of sad. But they used to have, you know, kind of like these I guess like extension classes and there's cool people on the vineyard. So I think the guy that I took it from was like a, you know, creative writing professor at Sarah Lawrence college mm -hmm. or something. He told me my writing was good for my age. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, stunning compliment. <laughs> um, and then intermittently throughout my life, I would be like, oh, I really want to write more. And I would go and do something that would kind of try to, you know, I would take a class or I would try to commit to a practice. And it never, it always was full of distraction. It never, I never was able to really become thoughtful and consistent with it until probably the last 10 years. And in some ways, at the same time that I feel like working and parenting and really not having a lot of time um, obviously makes it super hard to be creative to the extent that I would like to be. I also sort of feel like the pressure of those other responsibilities and identities was what pushed me to the point where I was like, I have to do something that's not about who I am as a worker or who I am in a family. Like I need to have some kind of independent identity. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and sort of, I think if I just felt like if I had an infinite amount of time, I probably actually never would have made anything. Interesting. Yeah. But it's cool that, that that art form is what kind of stuck with you even from a young age, right? I mean, you could have done anything in terms of like, okay, well, what am I going to do now to kind of establish my identity separate from all these other things that I'm doing, these other obligations, but poetry seemed to be the common or, or you know, yeah. your initial love, your, your art form, which is kind of cool. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are like that, I think, where they have, uh, like, like, music for instance i mean i've got tons of friends who like that's just they do it now they've done it all their lives it's just kind of part of their life um and it's something that 
even when they were young. I mean, that's what they love. So that, that was their art form that they, they can't, they can't not do it. You know what I mean? And it sounds like that was similar for you. It's like, cause it just kept surfacing, kept surfacing, kept surfacing. And then finally it manifested as a way for you to have something separate from your other, the other things in your life. So I think that's kind of cool. Totally. And I think the other thing that is great for me, but probably for so many people too, is that the internet, for all we love to hate on the internet and hate on social media, when you live in a small town and you have kind of a niche interest, you know, the internet has been amazing for connecting people and creating the opportunity to kind of be in community with other people who share your interests. That's very I know cool. what you're talking about when you talk about music, because of course my husband is, you know, a devoted musician and he goes out to play music live like two or three times a week. But those opportunities aren't as frequent in the poetry world as they are, well, for him, where we live in the traditional music world. So he gets yeah, a lot of so opportunities cool. to pursue his passion. Yeah, but that's so cool. Like you're saying, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, exactly. For all the the negative aspects of technology and the internet, it is it is a great resource to find like minded people, um, where you you can share this group this love of whatever your art form is with these people that you might not yeah you might not be able to have as as wide a group in your physical space or your physical region as, as you otherwise would. That's cool. Yeah. Cause poetry is, I, I think it's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself a poetry lover, but I I've always appreciated that art form. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I, I guess that's a good segue into your podcast because um, for people listening, Elizabeth is good friends with my wife, Danielle. They grew up together on Martha's Vineyard. And, um, I found out that Elizabeth did this podcast on, on poems and I started listening and I was just really enthralled with it because your passion for poetry totally translates through you kind of dissecting these poems that you love and sharing them with other people. And it, it really got me into it, um, into, uh, more into poetry than I had been before, but talk a little bit about the impetus for your podcast too. I mean, was that kind of your idea it was like, again, just kind of a sharing, you know, you, this is your love. Maybe you want to kind of help other people understand it better. People like me, like I, like uh, kind of new to poetry and kind of trying to understand it more and, and get into that art form. Was that kind of the impetus kind of like, Hey, I want to kind of share this with other people because I love it. And then also maybe I can dissect it and help other people understand poetry a little better. Well, first of all, I want to say that my pot, I haven't put out a new episode of my podcast in ages, which is really sad. You got to get on um, that. When and you so can. anytime anybody mentions it, I feel a little wave of shame oh, no. <laughs> about that. But <laughs> I am very excited because it's actually taking a new, um, it's, it's kind of going in a new direction, which is that the director of the Stockbridge Library in Massachusetts has asked me to host a series where I meet actually with the poet whose poem we're talking about. And then we talk about this one poem. So it's kind of an extension of my podcast. Very and cool. that's really great for me because, again, I have accountability. So. 
that will be the second Tuesday of every alternating month all winter. Oh, that's the first so one's cool. going to be in October. And uh, I have somebody for December. I don't have an October guest yet working on it. That's very cool. And I'm so I'm really excited about that. And we did a test one in June with the wonderful poet Jennifer Martelli, which you can find on YouTube if you're interested in it okay. from the Stockbridge Library. Okay. It and it was it's so great. It's so you just you know, you s sit down and I'm like, Jennifer, let's talk about this poem. Here's what I see in it. And then she says, yeah, you know, here's what I was thinking about. And it really gives amazing insight into the process that the poet was going through in terms of the inspiration, the choices that she's making, um, you know, and a lot of things where, and I think this is important for readers to understand too. Like I said to her, oh, here's something. Uh, we talked about this poem, Three Gorges, that she wrote about the, it's kind of about the Three Gorges Dam in, in China, but it's actually really about like daughters and fathers and kind of dams and bursting through. And, and one of the things that comes up in the poem is like, the girls are very noisy and the dad is, is, has difficulty with that. And I said to her, you know, when I read the poem, I was thinking too about the fact that gauge in French means the throat, you know, so it makes, you know, there's three daughters and there's three gorges, there's three throats of talking. And she's like, oh, I didn't know that. Right. <sighs> but that's, you know, so I brought something to the poem that she didn't put in there, but that turned out to be completely consistent with the ideas that she did put in there, you know? So as a reader, you're often bringing something to your experience of a poem based on your unique individual knowledge too. But that doesn't really answer the question. The question was, why did I do the podcast? And it's, I really didn't do it as a, to be kind of a teaching tool for people. I'm delighted if you feel like you got something out of it. I did yeah. it because for a couple of reasons. One, I think one of the most damaging things that can happen to you as an artist is when you start to focus too much on yourself. That is, that I think is really, that kind of solipsistic worldview is really problematic. And one, because you cut yourself off from appreciating, you know, all of the amazing stuff that's around you. And two, because I don't, I don't know, you should talk, you should tell me if you feel this way too. Like, okay. like, one of the things that can happen is that you start to get very kind of poisoned by the sense that other people are having more success than you're having and frustrated oh, yeah. by that. Yeah. And, and that's such a negative way to look at people who really are in you're in community with, you know, other yeah. people who care about the same things that you care about. And instead of being united by that shared joy, you become crippled by your jealousy of other people. That's so I wanted to make sure that I was doing something that was celebrating other people and not just about myself. That's super cool. And yes, that I totally relate to that. I mean, as a musician and a songwriter, yeah, you kind of see other people and you're like, well, yeah, they're pretty good. But I mean, I'm pretty good too. And it's like, why are they? But that's a great point. It, it, um, and I didn't think about that, but I love that. I love that idea that 
rather than give into that and and like you said focus on yourself and, and what you're going through as an artist just put t- uh, you know put that outward and 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 share the joy that you have in your colleagues and your fellow artists and your community i think that's super cool um i, I wanted to also touch on something you said too when we were talking about you interviewing that poet um and you bringing something to the poem that the, the author hadn't thought about. But that, I mean, that's typical in music too. I mean, and I'm wondering like as a poet and as a writer, is that something you're conscious of when you're thinking about the reader, um, what they bring to your work? Because for music, I mean, that's the, the, the common thread for all these people I've seen interviews with. It's like, Oh yeah, well somebody can't, you know, sometimes they don't even like to talk about the lyrics because they want the, the listener to make, have their own interpretation of that song. Right. So they won't even talk about, you know, their, you know, their perspective on the lyrics. Right. So is that, I mean, do you kind of have, think about that when you're writing? It's like, okay, well, if, if I talk about this poem and, and what I was thinking when I wrote it, that might alter the reader's interpretation of, or how they are, you know, receiving that information. You know, that's a, an interesting question that might t- take me down a rabbit hole that you weren't <laughs> anticipating. So hey, let's, if let's this let's is go. not the content you're looking for, you just let me know. <laughs> in, in creative writing and, Honestly, I would love to know if this happens in music too, because this is, I'm very curious about this now or in, in like any other field besides creative yeah. writing, because I only know about this in creative writing. Yeah. Most creative writers come through what's called a workshop model now. That's okay. sort of how creative writers are made in America. And in the classic workshop model, you go into a room, you sit at a table with like 10 other writers and you read your piece or maybe they've read it ahead of time. And then you sit there silently while they tell you what they thought about it. And so the idea is that you just receive their opinions, their guidance, their suggestions, whatever. And I think originally the idea is, you know, you're not allowed to get defensive about it. You really need to, if you're going to be a writer, you need to be able to hear what people are taking away from your work. So in that sense, the kind of conversation about, well, what did I intend and what came across, right, is really antithetical to that traditional model of, You stand back and you listen, but you don't get to contribute anything in terms of the meaning. Right. And and that seems sort of like what your songwriter friends are saying. Like, my, it's not my job to, you know, to influence the dialogue in any way. Yeah. But in the past maybe 10 years or so, that model has kind of come under a lot of criticism, particularly from... Um, people in traditionally marginalized communities who felt like, um, so I take my piece to workshop and a lot of people who don't maybe have the cultural competence to understand what's happening with it, just, you know, talk garbage about it for 20 minutes and I'm supposed to sit there and be like, okay, yeah, thank you for your racism. Um, and, and so a lot of places still use that and I'm not, I don't, I think it has value, 
But I also think there's been sort of a turn in a lot of the discourse in creative writing that is more towards like, let the author help you understand where they're coming from. That's cool. um, and, and I think both are really valuable. And also it's just interesting. You know, like it's really interesting to hear somebody talk about their process for making something, I think. So I really I so love I these conversations and I think it adds a lot to be able to hear what, what the, um, what the writer said. It's also interesting when you're in workshop to kind of sometimes be confronted with the reality that what you thought you were talking about is not what people are taking away at all. And then you have to kind of wrestle with this question of, well, do I want to let go of that? Or do I want to take that piece back to try to make it more what I thought that it might be? Yeah, because that's the interesting part for me is is just in your example, you you had some interpretations of that artist's work that they hadn't even anticipated, which is that's to me, that is one of the coolest things about art is that sometimes, you know, what you're creating and, and you know, you may or may not have a, a concrete intent with your lyrical, con like music, for instance, lyrical content, but the listener could you know, have some interpretation of that that you had never anticipated at all. And to me, that's so cool because that's the beauty of art to me is, is whether it's the listener or the reader, their interpretation is the important part of the process, really, to me. You know, I mean, we get joy out of creating art and we, I mean, obviously it's it's a symbiotic relationship to some degree, but I really think the cool thing is to to listen to people talk about like, how this poem, how they interpret the poem and how it, inter how it uh, affects their life or, or, or their thinking. Same with music. Right. Um, so I think that's really cool. And it's interesting because I, I, mean, I love hearing about the process, like the workshop process. I, I didn't know anything about that or how, how writers go about, you know, crafting their work. Um, but I, I'm glad it's kind of changing because I think that's even as writers of poetry, you know, the, the, the reader, man, that's, you know, you must get a kick out of that too. Like to, to hear somebody talk about a poem you wrote and, and how they interpret it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's super cool. Um, and I think that's the, that's the important part of art is, is the whoever's receiving the art. That's, that's where I get the most joy out of, of seeing that process, hearing them talk about it or, or reading what they, how they interpreted it, you know? So. It's interesting because I think, and tell me if this is the same for you too, that in the actual process of generating the work, I really don't think about the reader at all. Like in that yeah. first round of, of creativity and that kind of, um, you know, like inspired flow or whatever, the reader is not present yeah. in my experience. Yeah. I'm really in a kind of liminal state of, of unself-conscious connection with the materials, yeah. I guess, which are words yeah. for me. Um, but then later, I think obviously after kind of after that period is over, 
it is the relationship that's formed between the reader and the product. It's not even yeah. between the reader and me anymore. The relationship between the reader and the product is the most right. important and interesting part. Yes. And that's a great point too, is, is when you're creating the art. No, I mean, you don't think about, you're just immersed in, oh, I've got this inspiration. I've got this idea. I want to see it manifest some way. Exactly. And the best, you know, I think, I think if my thing is, with music, especially, I think if the artist is thinking about the 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 listener, then it taints the art or, you know what I mean? Like, I think it there's pandering that that is yeah. done a lot in music, especially and especially in corporate music where they want you to pander to this this demographic or whatever it is. But I think the best art is just created and then it's put out into the world and then people interpret it how they will. Yeah. So that's a great point. No, I, I'm the same way. I don't think about anything, but trying to create this idea that I have in my head and then get it, you know, on tape. And then, you know, if somebody listens to it and has an interpretation that I hadn't thought of, I think that's super cool. Yeah. So cool. That's, that's cool. Yeah. I, I but I love hearing, cause there's so many parallels. Cause I mean, art itself, there's so many parallels regardless of what discipline you choose, right? Because, I mean, essentially you've got this inspiration and you want to see it manifested in some way and then it's put out into the world and then people, you know, consume it. Um, and so I think I, I really kind of enjoy that um, as a musician and, and somebody who tries to write music, um, kind of the kinship between all the art forms I kind of enjoy. Because we can all kind of like like our conversation right now, we're 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 seeing so many parallels between music and poetry and and writing, um, and I think I think that's helpful too because I think it a lot of times it is a solitary process. You know, we're in our own heads a lot. You know, we're we're we've got these these ideas or these inspirations, and we're trying to work through them in our heads. Um, and as me especially, I'm an introvert, so I do a lot of living in my head. Um, but uh, one thing that you said I, is is kind of giving me inspiration is is to reach out to other fellow musicians and get more and accountability for myself, right? To say, hey, I need to start, you know, getting with other people and say, hey, you need to bring something to the table <laughs> and get something done. Um, so that's cool. Yeah, um, I mean, you you know a lot of musicians, right? So your yeah. thing could even be like, okay, you know, every you know, once a month on Friday, we're all going to send there you go. each other, you know, something that's in process. Even if we think yeah. it's garbage, we're just going to yeah. send it out. We're not yeah, going to, exactly. we're not going to censor ourselves by saying like, I'm only going to send something if it's good. Like, I love that. Or even sometimes it'd be like, you know what? send me the worst thing you're working on right now, you know, because then it releases the pressure to feel like you have to make something good. That's a great point. And do you feel that pressure? Like, do you, uh, when you're writing exactly, do you, do you write certain things off and say, Oh, that's crap. Or, or do oh, you just sure. kind of try to keep an open mind? Yeah. And sometimes I have a poem that came out like a couple months ago in a, in a journal that was like this very simple poem about a blue jay that flew into my husband's truck cap and then got like stuck in there. 
And I thought this is like such a metaphor for life, you know, because the, which is the problem. Sometimes when you have, when your idea is too clear, it actually makes the process worse. Right. But I thought like, oh my God, isn't this just like how it is, right? You're so panicked about whatever this constraints of the situation that you're in are that you can't actually see that there's a perfectly easy exit because you, you know, your, your mind panic has taken over. Yeah. Anyway, I started writing this poem like probably four years ago. And every time I would open it, I would be like, oh, this is garbage. This is garbage. And I would close it and put it away, close it and put it away. And then one day I opened it up and I was like, you know, it should be like this. And out it came. And that was it. I never edited it again after that. I just sent it out and it got picked up pretty quickly. That's awesome. And I think sometimes, you know, even though what I was making from that was lousy and I had to leave it alone, I couldn't, sometimes you can't fix it in the minute. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't make it happen, but there was something there. And when the time was right or the distance had happened, I'm a big believer in space. Then you could make something good out of something that was once bad. That's, that's what I'm getting to here. <laughs> I think that, yeah, you know. I totally hear what you're saying. I think that's so cool because I, again, like I, I, I've, seen examples in music where the same thing has happened, right? Like there's a story between um, Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry from the Eagles. Take it easy was a song that was partially written by Jackson Brown and he couldn't finish it. He's like, mm -hmm. I can. And so Glenn Fry's like, Hey, can I finish that song? And he finished it. And now we all know, take it easy because it's a huge Eagles hit and similar things with the band, like um, the weight I don't know if you know the weight by the band. It's one of their biggest hits, but that wasn't that's that was a throwaway song that Robbie Robertson had wrote just in case they needed another song when they were recording, they right? Were, yeah. And so this point I think is really interesting because oftentimes the artist isn't aware of um, what they have on their hands, right? That that could like you're saying, like and initially it's like oh that's crap, you know, and it's too obvious, it's too on the nose, but um, if you, like you say, if you do give it space, if you do give it time and you do kind of let it happen, it can be, um, it can be a really good work of art, um, despite your initial, you know, hesitation or, or thinking that, ah, this is, this is crap. So I think that's, I think that's super valuable for all artists too, to, to remember. It's like, Hey, you know, all those things that you, those scraps <laughs> that you kind of haven't finished or think are, are crappy or too on the nose, uh, try to revisit them and see if if something can be generated from those. That reminds me of like uh, I I was watching the the Rick Rubin's documentary a little while ago, and he had this thing where he he's like, oh, Tom Petty sent me a whole bunch of songs. I was like, these are all crap, but what's this little uh, like warm up thing you're doing here? I like that, and I think that was Last Dance with Mary Jane that turned into yeah. you know so. Yeah. So sometimes like the little things that you don't think are, are the, are the center are actually really where the, the surprise and the meat are. Yeah. I love that. And, and also it's just, it, it, it's something to keep in the back of your mind as an artist or, or just as a, in general, it's like, okay, you know, I think this is crap, but uh, you know, 
obviously like for instance like i record like little snippets on my iphone all the time and and so i've got thousands of these little mm -hmm. ideas that at the time seemed cool you know? <laughs> then you revisit them and it's like oh, okay well i don't know but it, it's you got to remind yourself hey that there might be some gold yeah. to mine in there that you hadn't thought about or, or or try to bring an open mind to these these things that you've written off essentially i think that's oh, really cool Sometimes it seems like garbage after six weeks, but if you wait six months, it seems good again. Exactly, because you've completely <laughs> forgotten about it. It's like, hey, this is really brand new. I love that. I think, you know, there's an interesting kind of inverse to that too, though. You know, like sometimes people can see something in your work that you didn't see, or sometimes, you know, these little throwaways can come back and be really um, the seed of something a lot bigger. But also, sometimes you have to stick to your own guns of, over something, even when other people, even other people that you trust, yeah. are saying, you don't know about this. I don't think this is doing it for me. Um, yeah. And I'm kind of going through that right now with the, um, the manuscript that I've been working on, uh -huh. which is a whole collection of poems in which Marie Antoinette is my imaginary friend. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and she talks to me a lot about, about climate change in my poems because I see her as, as kind of um, almost like a doppelganger of a certain part of contemporary experience where we are all like living beyond our means in the sense that we're living beyond, you know, what the world is capable of sustaining right. just like she was. And we're facing down our own destruction just like she did. Oh, and, you know, and how do you, how do you deal with that? Because on the one hand you can say, well, you know, she could have just changed her ways. And on the other hand, it's like, you know, she's a, she's a little part of a system that was way bigger than her just like we all are. So, yeah. you know, and what kind of pushback are you getting from people? And, and one of the things that I've been getting a lot of pushback on is that my readers are like, you don't leave, you need to put more hope into this, into this collection of poems. And I understand where they're coming from because, you know, a, even a collection of poems or even an album, really, you can tell me if I'm wrong about this. Like a lot of times it has a kind of a narrative arc to it, right? Like yeah. there will be a kind of, usually like an album isn't going to end on a total downer. Because <laughs> <laughs> for the most part, people don't, people don't want to leave an experience feeling really, really wrecked unless that kind of wreckage is, sort of emotionally satisfying in some way. Well, I mean, I think to our point earlier about artists not thinking about the listener or the reader, I think it's important because, and I think this is a, a great example of where artists sometimes do need to stick to their guns because, you know, it's, it's like writing a TV show and getting notes from corporate, yeah. right. On yeah. what's <laughs> funny or what's not funny or whatever. And, and I think, like you say, I think it's great to take all this feedback in, but as an artist, if you, in your gut, you're like, no, there, it doesn't need to be hopeful. And, you know, 
I'm just telling this story and and I'm then that's good enough. And then the chips fall where they may. I, I totally appreciate that more than, than somebody caving to, to external pressure to say, Hey, you've got to, it's got to be a happy ending here. It's like bullshit. It doesn't have to be a happy <laughs> ending, you know? And the story I'm trying to tell, I don't, I don't see, you know, I don't, I don't see the hope that you're seeing in this story. And I hope readers, you know, take something away from it. But at this point I can't, you know, I can't incorporate that feedback because it, it's, it's, it's not, it's going against my instincts as an artist. You know what I mean? And, and again, like right. it's, it's, it, you know, it makes it, I don't think it's pretentious or anything else. It's like, you know, you're just trying to, you're just trying to manifest your vision the best way you can. And sometimes there's feedback that you can incorporate that you think is going to uh, improve maybe uh, the outcome, but, but you can't let, all the feedback in that that you doesn't necessarily jibe with your vision as as an artist, and so I totally respect that. I think that's cool. And that's the complicated nature, I think, of of being an artist is that you both want your art to make a connection with someone else, and you don't want it to be dictated by other people's sense of what it should be. Exactly. And how how do you kind of balance those competing needs and and for me the best art is and i don't know for sure but the art that i consume that i feel has been created by the artist without um you know as much out outward influence as possible that's the art i like the most you know is is the what i feel is is the purest expression from that artist that that they can they can muster and so that's what I'm drawn to as a person. And I think you can tell that in the final, I mean, most of the time, I think you, as a, as a consumer of whatever art you, you enjoy, I think you can sense that the purity of the expression from the artist. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously in poetry, like there's not really very much, um, commercial success to be had. So <laughs> there's much less motivation to, um, you know, to, to produce a product that is kind of popular in the same way that there is in music. And I think in music, it's, it's much more difficult and music, music is interesting too, I think, because it, it's more complicated in that it's both, and you could say this about like film, right. Or television too, that the, the contrast between the art experience and then also almost the like physical pleasure experience is really different. Like there are definitely, I would say, you know, like I'm not, I'm not like a big Taylor Swift fan. Right. But like, mm -hmm you could see why people want to go to a Taylor Swift concert. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, that's an immersive experience. Yeah. Um, that, that is super satisfying and totally maybe separate from the kind of initial creative process of creating the songs. I have to say, that's I think a she's good a good point. songwriter too. So that's any Swifties point. are listening to this. Don't come <laughs> <with> me. <laughs> No, but that's a good point. I mean, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, music, especially there's, 
it's more multifaceted in terms of what the listener is consuming than reading, right? Yeah. When when it, when the written but the but the cool thing about writing is I think there's much more left to the imagination, I think, right? Because there's not the distraction because in music I mean, there can be instrumental music without lyrics, and that I think maybe that's closer to the mark to to written art expression, right? If it's just instrumental, then you're only dealing with, you know, the music itself, no lyrics. Right. So you don't have to interpret, like, you know, the meaning of, of what they're trying to say uh, through words. But um, I, so I see, yeah, I think, I think music is different because there's there's more distractions for the for the person consuming that art but i think um so i I think maybe instrumental music is the closest um analogy i think to the written word maybe yeah um, yeah in terms of art artistic expression because um, more is left to the imagination i guess um but even saying that though i mean even lyrics in in songs like i was saying like i I have this vivid memory of, of watching that um, John Lennon documentary where this guy, this homeless dude finds, he tracks John Lennon down at his house and, and starts to grill him on these lyrics. And John <laughs> Lennon's just going, dude, it's just, I'm just a guy there. I like playing with words there. I just was playing with words. That's really all I was doing. But he thought Lennon was specifically speaking to him with his right. lyrics. And, and that's yeah. so common. And so, Again, like back to like the interpretation of, of the person consuming the art. I think for me, that's the biggest kick I got. I get out of art is just seeing how people interpret this stuff. Um, I think it's endlessly fascinating. But anyway, I, I kind of went off on a tangent, but <laughs> but um, well, this I really enjoy this. We have to do this again um, yeah. because I really enjoy going down these rabbit holes. Um, but so you, you would you mention your your manuscript you're working on now again? What are you working on? The Well, this is the one I have that is almost finished. And, oh, cool. you know, it's out in the world, desperately looking for a little home. Oh, sweet. Because that's, um, that's a sad path that poetry manuscripts have to walk. Well, I'll, I'll plug it and I'll put it <laughs> links and whoever's it's, listening to my thing. It's called Ars Antoinetica, which is a play on oh. Ars Poetica which is a kind of poem in which a poet writes about their philosophy of poetry. Um, So it's sort of like, this is what I'm about. And I'm like saying like, I'm about being Marie Antoinette and, you know, living beyond my means. And it's, it's, so it's poetry about climate change, but through the lens really of, of privilege, I guess it sounds, I think it's pretty fun, honestly. So. I think it sounds cool. Um, I think the, I think it's the cool description sounds more serious than it is. But yeah. um, the idea that, you know, like, like when you live in America, and especially if you're of a particular class and you're really contributing to the things that are causing climate change, and yet you're lifestyle allows you to be really protected from the consequences of that. So oh, yeah. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Um, and the kind of uh, the tension between those two things. And also she was really into gardens and I'm really into gardens. So a lot of it is about how we love our gardens a lot. 
and the things we notice in them. I love that. I love that you're making these parallels between a person that far removed from our modern world and our modern world. I mean, and yeah, I mean, I think the, the parallels are obvious when you talk about it. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thanks so much, Elizabeth. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And I, I would love to do it again. So we'll see how this, this thing shakes out. But uh, yeah, would love to do it again. Yeah, this was fantastic. Thank you. You know, like, um, as a mom and as a public school teacher, the idea that anybody is actually going to listen to what I have to say for 40 <laughs> minutes is amazing. So thank you. This is like definitely Anytime. a once a year opportunity for me. Anytime. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Thank you.